Welcome to the Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 15, Lori and Tommy from behind, heading south on Lampkin Lane, really Meridian Avenue in South Pasadena. We left Tommy mid-sentence at the end of minute 14. He ends that sentence as we begin minute 15 with the word tonight. But never mind, Tommy, we've got a guest again, Andy Nelson of the Next Real Film Podcast. Welcome back, Andy. Thank you. Glad to be back. They say goodbye to each other. Lori continues walking alone. Second six, she begins to sing quietly to herself. Now, the lyrics for this song were written by Carpenter in the script, but Jamie Lee Curtis had to come up with the tune herself and was really nervous about it because she thinks she can't sing. I, I heard that she was talking to Deborah Hill about this, and, and, and she was like, what, what should it sound like? And, and Deborah said something uh, sweet, daydreamy, maybe about romance. And what, my, what I heard was that Deborah Hill is actually the person who kind of came up with kind of the hum and then said something like that. And Jamie took that and kind of refined it and turned it into the little thing that it is, which is funny because... I never knew that until I was doing some research. I always thought it was her badly doing a rendition of like just the two of us or something because she says just the two of us. <laughs> and here we only hear like two lines there. I think you hear six in one of the scenes added for TV later. We will deal with a TV scene in this minute, but not that one. But she sings the same song again. Yeah, I didn't know there was more yeah. to this song. That's funny. It kind of re- it's <laughs> a little repetitive, but each line is slightly different. Uh, in my blog, when I wrote about this movie, I actually suggested that this is the reason Michael tries to kill her, or tries to kill her friends rather, because oh. he sees her and then she says, "I wish I had you all alone, <laughs> just the two of us." Oh, interesting. So he goes to kill her friends so he can have they can be alone. There's his reasoning. It's an interesting moment in the film because we've just, you know, weirdly, the first minute that we talked about this week had the creepy John Carpenter music. The The second minute we talked about when we have the, the shadow or the shape pop up in the window, kind of the silhouette, we get that great musical sting. We get the stinger. This minute, I would think we would actually have the scary music, but really... As she walks away singing. Yeah, it was just the breathing. Yeah, it's just breathing. We hear birds chirping. And that's really it. And it makes for just a really creepy scene, especially because the way that Jamie Lee Curtis walks away, I keep feeling like she's starting to slow down, like she's going to turn around, like she's suspecting something, but she yeah. never quite does. Well, in the novelization, she feels like someone's watching her and does look back. But he's in Judy's room looking out the window, so she doesn't see Right, him. yeah. If she looked back here, he'd be easy to see. It's creepy. It's really creepy. And what is he wearing here? Is this some coat that he stole from someone? We won't see where he got it until later. Okay. But it is a mechanic's jumpsuit. That's right. That's right. And we don't see, we we only see that jumpsuit. We don't see the curly hair. Like we saw a little glimpse of the curly hair in the last minute, kind of in the, in the silhouette. Yeah, not till later. They don't really show us his head and the mask until he's outside the school. Right. Even when Richie, one of the three bullies, bumps into him. You can tell at the top of the edge of the screen that he is wearing the mask, like for the shot, but they purposely keep it out of the frame so that it'll be revealed when he's across the street. I I kept watching the opening of this when he first pops in, trying to see, because you do get a tiny glimpse of kind of the neck and chin before the, the, 
Yeah, he's coat. probably wearing well, it. Well, that's what I was wondering. Just in case. Yeah. I think he would put it on either way, but they framed it so you couldn't see it. Right, right. Because the shoulder is kind of scarier. It's, he, he makes him... It's like, uh, was it shots in Cujo? Where uh, Yondabont, director of speed, when he was the director of photography for Cujo, he did these shots where the dog is in the foreground, the car in the background, so the dog appears bigger than the car. Right. And it's like this. Michael is huge because we're seeing the shoulder that takes up a good portion of the screen. Yeah, this is, I mean, we saw him, I can't remember how many minutes ago, uh, maybe five minutes ago when he escapes. And I, I guess he seemed kind of big when he's like scrambling up on top of the car and kind of grabbing... Uh, grabbing the nurse and stuff. Yeah, when he grabs Marion. But yeah. the way that it happens in the dark, in the rain, and it's really hard to get a really yeah, it's firm quick. grasp on it. But yeah, like the way that the camera is always positioned lower than him through these minutes, it really uh, does make him seem like this just looming presence. And I talked about in like the opening sequence back in, I think, minute three, I was talking about it, is really the only time we really get his point of view where we're in his head looking through his eyes. Yeah. Most of the time we're nearby. Right. We're like over his shoulder or next to him. And when he's following Tommy, we're in the backseat of the car. Right. Not the front with him. And so it's more like we're passengers with him going along for the ride and walking along watching these girls, or right now just Lori by herself, but later all three, instead of being him. My theory on that, and I don't know if if Carpenter said anything, um, but I always felt like it was because the opening was a child and it seemed like it might have been a little too difficult to actually do that with a child actor kind of doing all that. Whereas, Well, they also didn't, they didn't have the child actor except for the end of one day. That one shot. Yeah. Okay. That's why Deborah Hill's hand is the one that grabs the knife and the one that stabs Judy because they didn't have the kid yet. Well, that, you know, those are answers that uh, a filmmaker uh, kind of comes up with the, the method to yeah. make the scene work because of the... Yeah, like, did they do that because the kid wasn't there? Right. Or was it because they wanted us, like, force us to be Michael for the opening scene to, like, draw us in, and then they didn't have to later, or it was just easier later? I don't know. Well, it's not like the POV um, hadn't been around. You no, know, I mean, no, there had been plenty of horror movies that had taken advantage of it, um, whether to kind of create a creepier moment or to hide the fact that they really had no budget and they couldn't really show yeah. the, the creature or whatever it was. You don't want to, you can't show your thing. So you show what it sees. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so um, I think that Carpenter used it. And again, who knows why he really did, whether it was on purpose or just because he didn't have the kid and had to come up with something. Right. But it ends up working really nicely because we see it, the, the kid's POV at the beginning, but then we don't see it anymore. And it, right. I, I feel like it ends up, you know, kind of creating this kind of different presence of, of uh, the shape throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite shots in the film is... It's a few minutes from now. It's when he's following the girls and he has just driven away in his car. The camera just stays in place as the girls walk away. And it's like, we're just waiting there for a moment. You might wonder, is he going to show up? Is he going to walk past us and follow them? Cause they're disappearing from view and we're just stuck behind watching. Cause that's what we are. Right. Like looking backward at the movie, it's like becomes a sort of voyeuristic thing where, He's positioning us next to the action so we can decide if we're complicit or not. But at the time, yeah, it could have been practical things like just where they could put the camera or 
who was available. But it works to his advantage regardless, yeah. because he's found a way to kind of create these scenes that end up having this built-in tension. You don't know if he's going to pop in or not. You know, the, the breathing can kick in, whatever it's going to be. It works really effectively. It's very much kind of like Kubrick in like The Shining, for example, which obviously was after this, yeah. but... Um, the way that when uh, the character who has the shining, the old oh, man, the, the housekeeper who Dick. comes back trying to find Danny, he comes back and he's walking through the hall and we know that Jack Nicholson is there with right. the axe, but we just don't know where. And But he's behind a column or something, but and he's going past column after column and it just, it ratchets up the tension because you just, you never know. And it, it you know, that's something that Carpenter has always done very yeah, effectively. something's coming. Right. But you don't know when. And the same thing for this shot, because again, it feels like Laurie's about to turn around the way that she's walking. She never quite does, but we can hear yeah. this breathing and it seems like she might. And is she going to see him? It sets it up very effectively. And it's going to work well as we start seeing him pop up in places where she is going to start kind of thinking, did I see him? Was there someone? Yeah. I heard someone else's, it was, I forget what podcast it was, but it was someone who saw the movie for the first time now. Oh, interesting. After like modern horror films. And they're like, he keeps showing up and nothing happens. And I'm like, no, he keeps showing up and it increases the tension because we know <laughs> something's going to happen. Right. We're just waiting for it and waiting for it. And it's like later slasher films in the 80s, we're cheering for it. This one, not so much, but that's what they built. It's very uh, interesting how the evolution of these sorts of scenes have taken place in horror films because I mean this shot yeah. I mean it's 34 seconds like this is like half of our minute looking at this shot of him I know Jigger. just him sit there and her yeah. walking. So it's it's interesting. I you know I do think that you try that in a horror film today and and people are probably going to like what are these people doing? But it's it's the evolution. This is a great moment in the commentary track with Jamie Lee Curtis as well uh, because she does not like horror films. They scare her. And this shot, she's just like, that is scary. <laughs> He's always doing is standing there. She knows what's going to happen. She's in the movie. But she, that's scary. And it is. It's We're stuck next to this guy. Now, I have a note because I deal with IMDb goofs from time to time. Michael's breathing does not quite match with the breathing that we see, like the noise and the visual. As far as his body, kind of the way it's rising and falling? Yeah. Oh. Which I actually was surprised by when I like slowed it down to check, because I would assume they were recording his actual breathing on location to save money. But no. But I guess not, because huh. it doesn't quite match. Or maybe the, just the sound recording was out of sync. I don't know. Well, it's funny, because I know they did a lot of ADR, like in the last minute with all the dolly shots and everything, because the dolly was yeah, so the squeaky. Yeah, but there's no movement here. So, <laughs> so it's funny. Right. Like, why do they need to come back and loop that breathing in? Like when they're using the Panaglide, yeah, they're not going to have squeaks. It's probably all the dialogue is happening. But yeah, when they're using the dolly, they might have to re-record that. This is breathing standing still and it doesn't match up. Oh, that is funny. And then Lori walks. If she did keep walking this direction, knowing South Pasadena, on the right, the corner up ahead is the hardware store that we'll see later in the movie. Well, and that street down there that she's walking toward, that is probably the busiest road we've seen so far in any of these minutes. Like, there's clearly a busy road yeah. down there. And it's one of the two busiest in South Pasadena. Now there's a really nice train station across the street from the hardware store, too. So you get a lot of train traffic there. There are train tracks there. Well, you do see the railroad crossing sign in this shot. Did you say that the Myers house is now down on this corner across from the hardware store? It would now be the corner on the right is the hardware store. It is on the corner on the left. Oh, okay. 
facing south. So facing the way this camera's pointed right now. Okay. So uh, you can see on the left of frame, like there's a sign of some bu- business that's down across the street there. So th- basically that house now is blocking whatever that sign says. Okay. Well, he really didn't move very far. Laurie sings and second 29 we cut, but uh, we also have made for television when they were filming Halloween 2. They filmed a few sequences to add time for it to air on television, and this is one of them. We get uh, Loomis seeing the inside of the sanitarium, the aftermath of Michael having escaped, talking with a couple nurses and finding Michael's room. Checking out Meyer's room. It's funny that the earlier added scene showed Michael's room in 1964, and all you see is a bed and a chair. But here, it's like there's a wardrobe and some other piece of furniture and several things broken. Like It seems like there's more furniture now than when he was a kid. But it looks like it's the same Well, room. I love that it's clearly like wallpapered because he was like tearing at the wallpaper or something. Yeah. But the wallpaper is like practically the same color as what's under it. So it's like, why bother? <laughs> it's so funny. So they could have tears. <laughs> yeah, right. It just, they just wanted the wall like shredded. <laughs> it's a, it's a funny little scene. And I will say Donald Pleasance, um, he is just so angry. Oh yeah. Through this cut scene and the rest of the minute that we're talking about. Yeah. He is uh, just livid and is just taking it out on everybody. I love here. He like asks who was watching Michael and the nurse says it's this guy Bernardi. It was supposed to be. And a few lines later, Loomis is like just annoyed. Bernardi. He doesn't even know the guy. He just heard the name, but he's annoyed. Like the name itself is bad now. <laughs> well, this is the, so they, this was a scene that they added when it played on TV is what you're saying, right? Yeah. They filmed, it's three different sequences that they filmed about it was when they were doing production for Halloween 2. Well, it's interesting because they were obviously, again, doing a retcon yeah. to kind of add this sister element. Although, if you watch this without looking at Halloween 2 first, yeah. it could just be he's returning be to the place where he killed his sister. Exactly. Yeah. And before Loomis goes into like Haddonfield proper, he stops at the cemetery first, which is where mm. the sister is. That's in the... Uh... That's in the, in the movie. Right, yeah. The, it's it's interesting that the whole sister reveal here with the name with the, the it's scratched on the door and everything it just yeah scratched on the door yeah yeah it's it's an interesting way to kind of add that element in here yeah because it can be taken without the second one as referring to judith or since they filmed it when they were making halloween 2 they know that's going to happen now it now ties this one more directly into the second one right right and then this leads us right into back to the scene with dr win because our our lovely nurse reminds us that that dr win's waiting to see him the first nurse says dr win is waiting to see you doctor (laughs) that's a lot of doctors and so we go to the outside of the sanitarium. Uh, the character, Dr. Terrence Wynn, played by Robert Phelan. Phelan had been in a lot of things. I typed up a list here, but it's long. Uh, and he'd been in other Carpenter films. He was in Starman. Well, he would later be, yeah. Six years later. He was yeah. in um, Someone's Watching Me was the movie that Carpenter made right before Halloween, but it was on TV in November. So it was like made before, aired after. He's in that Right. It's, but he's, he did a lot of TV shows. Yep, yep. And would do a lot more through the 80s. I actually just watched Three Days of the Condor like last week, and he was in that. Nice. Yeah, it's his other feature credit. It's interesting, like Beretta is on his list, and MASH, and 
a few of the other people in this movie were also in episodes of Beretta and MASH. I wonder, I want to go back and look and see if they were in the same episodes by chance. Like, had they already met? Maybe. Probably not, because there's especially MASH. It was on for a long time. Right, exactly. The, it makes you wonder, though, if that's coming from the casting director, like just pulling people that... Right that are familiar that they've worked with yeah they have a list of people or was that, that they have files on carpenter who is like a fan of those episodes like oh what about those guys in that episode yeah maybe carpenter watched beretta like we were talking in an earlier minute about his choices for Lori, and one of them he didn't even know the actress's name he just saw her in something and was like she'd be good yeah right. so maybe that's how he casts like picked a lot of things watch him in something and get him we will see the character of dr win again you know, spoilers in Halloween five. That's the big spoiler, actually. And Halloween six. <laughs> that's not, as it turns out, a good thing. Oh. Because Dr. Wynn's not a very good person. Do you like spoilers, Andy? You know, I, I'm one of those people who, if it's something I really care about, and it's something that's going to be fresh in my mind, then I prefer not to know the spoiler. But if it's something that's like, you know, I'll probably forget it by the time I get there, it probably isn't going to matter. <laughs> You'd probably forget yeah, right. which character it was that I said. <laughs> Dr. Wynn is the retcon later is that he is the reason Michael gets out of the hospital. In a moment, he says, I'm not responsible, Sam. That is a lie. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> he is literally the reason Michael got out. Huh. And he's the one who says, like, Michael shouldn't be able to drive. He's the reason Michael knows how to drive. I believe they specifically mentioned that. <laughs> well, I, I wrote that as a note because I was wondering. I'm like, how did he learn to drive? You know, other than watching it on TV or something, you know, it's not something he's ever had the opportunity to do. Although I did think that it was kind of smart screenwriting to have uh, Loomis kind of talking about that. And he had his throwaway line there, you know, to Dr. Wynn about uh, about that line, you know, saying, you know. Yeah, he was doing very well last night. Yeah, just it's a throwaway. Maybe someone gave him lessons. But it ends up working to kind of write it off. And I thought that was actually pretty smart screenwriting. Yeah. Just, yeah, maybe someone did. The only thing we know about Michael's time in the hospital is what Loomis tells us. In the novel, Michael is, he talks in the hospital. He's creepy, but he talks. Like. And he does interact with people. Okay, to to other people. Yeah. Loomis, anyone who kind of is around. Yeah. And he, people who do things he doesn't like end up dead or injured. And Loomis is convinced Michael's doing it. And actually, at one point, allows them to have a Halloween party. I talked about this in a previous minute, but he allows a Halloween party to happen, hoping he'll catch Michael doing something. And a girl almost drowns, a 16-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. while trying to bob for apples. Except when the lights come back on, Michael's standing several feet away, completely dry. The filming location here is Lavina Hospital and Sanitarium in Altadena, California. It does not exist anymore. Right. But right when they exit the doors, you can see the floor mat by the door says Lavina. <laughs> really big. It was founded in 1909 and was one of the more prominent tuberculosis treatment centers in the country. Interesting. But then in 1982, it was too expensive to run, and they merged it and moved all their stuff over to Huntington Memorial in Pasadena. So in its place now, there is a gated community called Lavina Estates. They do a really good job. This is a, a, a dolly move that we're kind of, it's it's a single shot for the rest of the minute. Watching, uh, we're leading really uh, these two guys as they leave. Is this one dolly or is this panaglide? Uh, you know. Because aren't they going down the walkway? I don't know. I feel like it's dolly because I feel like. It could be a dolly and they just zoomed in for the door. Well, maybe. because I feel like right 
after it starts at about second 34, right before the camera starts moving, if you look in the window on the left, you can see this in the window, the reflection of the, the guys, the camera team. And it, to my eyes, it looks like somebody pushing a dolly. What second did you say? About 32, 33, right in there, right as the two guys uh, get to the camera. If you look in the window on the left, you'll see a little... Oh, yeah, you um, can see something in the window. It's very brief, but you can see the... Yeah, you see the reflection of somebody. And I swear, to my eyes, it looks like somebody pushing a dolly, but... Trying to see if the later window had a better reflection. It doesn't. I could be wrong. I have a hard time. Like, I feel like the, the windows later, like, they're all angled because it's kind of a rounded building. Oh, no. And I have not been able to see any reflections in any of those. If you look right before they get to the car, there's a drop-off. There's a curb. Uh-huh. So... That had to be someone doing panaglide backward, I would think, which is impressive. The dolly would have made, you would have seen that if it bumped off the curb. Yeah, you're right. Huh. Okay, there it is. Well, it's it's a very smooth move regardless. Yeah. I think they do a great job with it. That's it's something that's great in this movie because of that camera is that they have these long conversational takes where there, it's a couple of pages of dialogue in one shot and it kind of gets you very engrossed in what's going on. Well, and, and Carpenter is pretty patient with his, with his filmmaking. And I'm sure part of it is also just, you know, being uh, budget conscious and moving through things quickly. But I, I think in all three minutes, really, we've had some really nice long shots that have worked well to kind of set scenes and, and move us uh, from A to B. And, and in this case, get us through some exposition. Mm-hmm as um, Loomis really kind of lays in to win as far as his, his uh, poor attempts at trying to stop this guy. Yeah, two roadblocks and all points. Bulletin wouldn't stop a five-year-old. Two roadblocks and his APB. <laughs> in the novel, Loomis actually stops at one of those roadblocks, and I think he just drives right through. Oh, does he? So their roadblocks aren't very good. <laughs> That's fantastic. Also from the novel, we learned there was an extra kill. Michael oh, broke a guard's really? neck while breaking out. I never mentioned that in the movie, though. So I guess that's, that wouldn't be canon. Is this his first uh, film with... Uh, I think it is his first film with Carpenter? With Carpenter, yeah. And he wasn't even the first choice. He wasn't, yeah. For Who was? Uh, it was Christopher Lee or um, Peter Cushing. Oh, interesting choices, both of those. But for what they were offering was like 20000 Neither one of them wanted to do it. Gotcha. Although 20000 ended up being for only five days of work, so... <laughs> Well, it's funny, though, because it really set Donald Pleasance on this great track, particularly with Carpenter, because he ended up in a good number of uh, his later films and at least in the second Halloween movie. He's also in the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So it's it's a franchise he, he continued with. Until he died. Yeah. And a relationship with Carpenter that he uh, continued with. Although he only took the movie because his daughter, a musician, saw an assault on Precinct 13 and liked the music. Oh, interesting. So when she heard, she heard what he was offering, she's like, yeah, go work with him. Wow. Carpenter's Isn't cool. That funny? Well, I'm glad that he did because I, I think that he's, despite his, his constant crankiness yeah. uh, through these scenes, I think that he's just fantastic. He also gets very... Uh, You've only, you haven't seen the later ones. He gets very uh, energetic. Oh yeah, to put it mildly, like a little bit overacting, but pretty good. Like there's actually some nice emotional moments with him in the fourth one because like he feels responsible for Michael. Uh, interesting. For anyone who likes cars, Loomis's car is a 1977 BMW 320i E21. Is this his car? Possibly. 
But well, because I guess okay. So the nurse was driving him. The nurse was driving because they were driving the the state vehicle because they were transferring Michael for his hearing. So okay, so I just assumed because he is twenty. His twenty first birthday was supposed to go in front of a judge to see if he would go to a different facility. I guess I just made the assumption that this car then was a rental because why would his car be here if he was coming here to leave? If he works here, he might live nearby. Uh, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. It's the next day. We don't see this car too much, though. This scene and right. then this scene by the Yeah, there's not a lot here. Booth. This is where we get the bit about the 150 miles yeah. to where his house is. To Haddonfield. And so, you know, I mean, if he's driving fast, he could get there in you know over the course of the night, which obviously he does. Right. I It did make me wonder, and I can't remember in later minutes, do we ever see the car again that he stole? The station wagon? Yeah. Yeah. That's when he's standing outside the, the high school, he's driving it. When he follows Tommy, he's driving it. That's right. And near the end of the movie, that's how Loomis figures out what right, neighborhood right, Michael's right. in. He finally, he's wandering around and he sees the car. That's right. Uh, oh, and a funny note, Loomis is parked in the handicap space. <laughs> well, he's clearly always in a rush. <laughs> yeah, he's got places to be. <laughs> and then second 55, Dr. Wynn makes what some think is a very good point. We've already talked about it. He says, now, now, for God's sake, he can't drive a car. We already talked about that a bit, though. But that's funny. And it's... Loomis says he was doing very well last night. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because then that is the exact point that they do retcon later. Yeah. And Loomis says, uh, maybe somebody around here. We don't get the rest of the sentence. And I liked this one. As the minute ends, Loomis is throwing his coat into the car and it is still in the air. So it's like a cliffhanger. Like, will his coat ever land? He throws his coat a lot because he throws his coat also in the cut scene or the TV scene that we that we also watched. <laughs> yeah. When he walks into that room after he says the guy's name, yeah, he throws his coat down on the chair. <laughs> I think that's why he carries why he wears it. So he can do things with it. Be dramatic. <laughs> Just so he could throw it. And fling it around behind uh, him. I need to carry an extra piece of clothing <laughs> around just so I can throw it when I'm angry at something. But yeah, the minute ends and his coat is in midair. In the back seat of the car. Do you have anything else for minute 15? Nope, I think that was it. Just those notes about uh, Michael driving. I had a I had a weird bit here where I got, on, I got sidetracked in my research about the deinstitutionalization of mental hospitals. Oh, really? Because I was trying to figure out how many movies have escaped mental patients. And if there were like more of them in the 60s and 70s when all the mental hospitals were closing down. Uh-huh. I couldn't confirm it, though. Interesting. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, well, that was a dead end. That's funny. Because even the hospital they're using for this scene doesn't exist anymore. Closed. Right, right. It's too expensive by 1982. Huh. One thing I did find, E. Fuller Torrey in a book called The Insanity Defense, How America's Failure to Treat the Seriously Mental Ill Endangers Its Citizens, suggests that the dangerous madman was popularized in cinema as far back as 1902 <laughs> in a film called The Maniac Barber. I wonder if that's a uh, the first adaptation of the Sweeney Todd story. Probably, yeah. <laughs> But otherwise, it was like a weird dead end where I was looking funny. into mental hospitals and timing with films coming out. Too much information. That's so funny. Confirm it with like a little bit of time on Google. <laughs> As the listeners will find out in later minutes, sometimes I take the time on Google and find out weird things. <laughs> Just a preview. Tommy's Halloween costume later cost me hours of research. Wow. Because I wanted to know what it was. (laughs) 
And I got obsessed. Like, after a while, I'm like, no, no one else on the internet has figured this out in 40 years. I'm going to do it. That's hilarious. And I'm not going to spoil it here, but I think I found it. Well, that's a good uh, a, a good uh, tease for that minute. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be in minute 40-something, I think, when I talk about that. And the details of all the searching that took. Oh, so funny. Cool. That is all for minute 15. So before we go... One more time, Andy, where can the listeners stalk you? Yeah, check us out over on The Next Reel uh, film podcast. We're at uh, thenextreel.com on all your podcatchers, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those places. So, yeah, find us there. The Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk us on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute. Or join the Facebook listeners group 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time. See you later.